0: Welcome back to the Sentientism Podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Jasmine Singer. Jasmine is the author of The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan and the memoir Always Too Much and Never Enough. She's the co founder and co host of the award winning R. Henhouse podcast podcast and non-profit she's the director of editorial for kind of beauty and she's also the editor of the encompass essays pursuing racial equity in animal advocacy make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and i'd love to know what you think so why not write a review or give us some stars on whichever podcast platform you listen on you can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on your favorite social media platform uh, you'll be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in the idea, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Jasmine. How are you?
1: Good morning, Jamie. I'm so happy to chat with you this morning.
0: Likewise, we've had a few sort of text-based conversations, and this I is know. the closest we'll get to actually seeing each other's faces for the moment. until the well, for the moment.
1: But I'd love to get a coffee with you at some point in the future when it is safe to do. That would be wonderful to
0: do that, to see you in London next time uh, you're allowed to come visit us.
1: I'm waiting for the second you let me in. I will get
0: there. (laughs) We'll get you a priority in the airport. I'm sure it'll be fine. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for making the time to join these this series of sentientist conversations. Sentientism is a really simple moral philosophy that I'm trying to recast and popularize that just commits to using evidence and reason when deciding what's real. And when it comes to what matters, that we should draw our moral circle based on sentience, the capacity to have experiences. So in practical terms, that includes humans and you know, roughly animals. Obviously ties in with much of your personal advocacy and your agenda that we'll come back to later on. So these conversations are with people who both agree with that philosophy and don't, so we can see where the conversation goes. But it centers around those two central questions, what's real and what matters, and really how people have gone through a personal philosophical journey through their life. And then we'll talk a little bit about the implications for the, for the future if you get more people to agree with you about the way the world is and the way it should be. But before we get on to those two questions, it would be great for people who don't know your work and many listeners and watchers of this will know what you work, but for those who don't, how would you best introduce yourself and the things you focus on?
1: I just want to start by saying thank you for having me. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit through Twitter DMs and also (laughs) just your podcast. I think what you're doing is remarkable. I think it's different. I think it's needed. I am just a tiny bit intimidated by our discussion this morning (laughs) because you seem so smart and I've only had one and a half cups of coffee, but... (laughs) That being said, we are on the same page, uh, like a thousand percent, and I love the opportunity to be able to think about these issues from a different sort of standpoint, a different beat. So thanks again for having me. I am Jasmine Singer, and I'm an author, an activist. I run a nonprofit. I've worked in the animal protection movement for uh, a long time maybe 17 years or so. Before that, I was an AIDS awareness activist. So I have a long history of activism. And currently, I have two books out. One just came out as we're recording this. It came out a couple days ago. That one is called The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. And the
0: banner is wonderful.
1: Thank you. It's still left over from my launch party the other day. Hence my, like, I don't usually walk around with a fabulous vegan sign behind me, but it's (laughs) COVID times and we're having our launches virtually and and it's all things vegan manifesto. And it does get into animal rights issues despite the pretty pink packaging. I also have another book out, which came out in 2016 called Always Too Much and Never Enough. It's a memoir about my journey to, to veganism, my journey through food addiction, my journey to body positivity all centered around what it means to come of age as an offbeat person in New York City. So that is my first book. And I am the co-founder and co-host of Our Hen House, which is a podcast. As yeah, Ed. wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I love it. And it feels like so far beyond anything that I created. It's like its own entity. And Marianne Sullivan and I started it in early 2010, January 2010, and we've been going on the air every single week without fail, and we can chat about Our Hen House later if you'd like. We also produce the Animal Law podcast that Marianne, who is an esteemed animal law professor, hosts. She is a remarkable brain, and the reason I, I wanted to start Our Hen House was because I wanted the world to have access to her brain. And then beyond that, I am the vice president of content at Kinder Beauty, which is a vegan cruelty beauty subscription box that is mission based and co-founded by someone who you're probably neighbors with Ivana Lynch and I am also the editor at large at Veg News magazine I'm the former senior editor so that's me in a nutshell I live in I live currently I live 2 hours north of New York City I w- I just moved from L.A., though I was in New York City for many years, a couple decades. And I am passionate about changing the world for animals. And any way that we can do that is worth exploring. Yeah, that's
0: an amazing journey. Thank you. And I don't know how you fit it all in, to be honest, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm very glad you made an hour for me, so thank you.
1: Oh, of course, and uh, lots of coffee, I think, is you and I already know, we have that yes. in common. So. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. I'm a few ahead <laughs> of you. So it would be great to roll the clock back and go back to those fundamental philosophical questions, because I think what we'll come back to is how your vision of the future plays into all of the things you fill your life with now and all the contributions you're, you're making. But if we roll the clock back and think about those basic philosophical questions the first one is what's real and for many people that's a story about whether they grew up in a sort of naturalistic atheistic environment or a religious household how their philosophy about what's real has shifted over time if it has so it'd be great to understand that story and you can go back as far as you uh, feel comfortable
1: yeah i've never been asked this uh, by anyone on an interview so i'm not sure i've ever thought about it in the way you're contextualizing it but it is a fascinating question actually, and I guess the basis for why you started, you know, your your podcast. What is real for me? It is real that we exploit and murder billions of animals a year. Yeah. And that it has become such a societal norm that it is just something that we collectively can ignore, and yet it is the ultimate in gaslighting. If you think about it, which we do, we think about it all yeah. the time. Like, we certainly, many of us, when we went vegan, had that moment where we wake up in the morning and we think about how many, we imagine the animals on the conveyor belts uh, in real time. We know that's going on. We know that they're in pain. We know that they're being torn apart from their families. We know that they anticipate that the animals ahead of them on that conveyor belt are anticipating murder. They're watching their friends get killed. They're crying. Out in pain. We know that there are other ways of being. And I think that's real. Yeah. Uh, for, I, I, I think it, it- We often spend time, vegans and those of us who care about animal uh, advocacy animal rights, spend time thinking about our our childhood and like, why didn't we know that? Why did we grow up in a society where our parents, who were probably good people, poured us a glass of cow's milk to drink? I grew up in the 80s. That was what we did. (laughs) <laughs> like, And I say that It's 80s specific But when I talk to people Who grew up in the 50s Or the 90s They're like yeah Mine too But for some reason I associate the 80s With this big glass Of cow's milk This You had to eat Sort of your chicken breast Or whatever Like it is literally Called Chicken breast Yeah And I cared about the world I cared about I was a bullied kid And I cared about that I cared about Not being unkind To other people I cared about the fact That people were Unkind to me and yet I was eating chicken breasts. What is real? The real is the fact that our cognitive dissonance as individuals and as a society is uh, kind of Herculean in its in its ability to Shut off from the rest of the world and the rest of reality yeah. uh, By the way, can I ask you? Do, how do you identify as atheist?
0: I do? Yeah, I tend to prefer the term naturalistic because for me atheism is just the absence of a belief in a god which is not particularly interesting as a stance it doesn't have any implication for morality or any other sorts of beliefs as well so there are atheists who have other supernatural beliefs for example Mm. so i i tend to use the term naturalistic because it just says we should use evidence and reason to work out what's real in practical terms that might mean a scientific worldview, but it's also more pragmatic as well it's my own experience personal experience of things is evidence in its own but what it means is that I think we should have beliefs that are probabilistic, so we should never be 100% sure of anything outside of formal systems like maths. We should always have some room for doubt and some skepticism,
1: Mm. that we should
0: always be open-minded so that our beliefs should be provisional, always ready for new evidence or reasoning to come in, and that we should be prudent as well and be careful. So there's, I guess there's a humility to it, but yeah, it's a commitment to using evidence and reason um, to hold belief. So one of the implications is, yes, I'm an atheist. I don't have a belief in any deity because I don't think there's any, any evidence for it. So.
1: And did, what religion did you grow up?
0: So I grew up as a Christian, but it was it was quite a, a background thing in the culture and the family we were in. It wasn't particularly intrusive. It was a, we went to church a few times a year, but not every week. Never took it particularly seriously. The school I went to had a sort of religious context, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. pushing it as a part of the agenda Mm -hmm. and I moved away from that I guess when I was about my early teenage years partly because I just read more widely about all the different religions and so I was looking at the evidence and thinking it just doesn't hang together and I could see all the other religions and it felt like all of them really were more you know human likely to be human constructs than anything real but there was a separate reason which was about I saw some problems in some of the ethical systems that came from those religious worldviews as well. And that doesn't have to happen because many religious world worldviews have a really deep, broad compassion that's genuine at, at its heart. But just too often I saw that because many of those religious systems really were defined a long while ago by a certain powerful group of people, the rules had been interpreted in a way that made compassion conditional, or defined in and out groups Mm -hmm. there was very casual sexism homophobia caste discrimination other forms of discrimination that seem to be built in that aren't required in their religious worldview but often they seem to bubble up so it was for those two reasons that i moved away from it and went to a more naturalistic
1: uh, but you just mentioned that it was like in the background for you and i sometimes yeah that's more dangerous. Because like in the background for us as a society is animal cruelty. Like, yeah. we sort of, People still eat animals like they know it's wrong. Just in the background, they're a little too busy to really focus on it. It's just like growing up with religion, it, even if it's just like a subtle thing. Okay, I grew up as the Jewish version of what you just said. Like yeah. I grew up as a Jew. We, I did go to Hebrew school. I also celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah because mm. I had a lot of parents and step <laughs> other step parents. And then a couple of years later, some more step parents. There was a lot of like different like holidays being celebrated. Yeah, but yeah. I, I was about Mitzvah. I did go to Israel when I was 15. And, and yet it is that foundation that to me is weird, like reform Judaism, we had all the gays went to our to our temples. And of course, yeah. I wound up being a big old lesbian myself and so you know, it's nice to, it's nice to know that when i was a kid there were other queer people around me yeah. even in my religious setting but that's still weird because if you look at like the root of Judaism or any kind of religion that gay people are not allowed here and so we have to do gymnastics in our heads to normalize it we have to like just decide oh, Reform Judaism is different gays are allowed here but why yeah. It's very similar to like humane meat crap. Like yeah. the, the mindset that if we do enough mental gymnastics, then we can justify this really empty labeling system that means absolutely nothing because it's it's better. So yeah. I think I just compared religion to <laughs> eating animals, but whatever.
0: <laughs> but, I, but that's partly why I do think there's a parallel between those two systems of thought. And that's partly you know why this idea of sentientism some people are really uncomfortable having the epistemology and the ethics together. They think you should keep them completely separate. So there's over here, there's sort of fact and evidence and reason or the supernatural and what we believe. And over here, there's, you know, an ethical system about what's right. So some people will talk about the is ought distinction. Or they'll say you can't get an ought from an is. And so they like those things to be separate. I think it's really healthy to bring them together. So humanism does that. And it says, look, we should be naturalistic and scientific and we should use facts. And then we should have universal consideration for all humans. There's mm-hmm. a problem there, which is <laughs> most humanists, for most humanists in practical terms, it is just about humans. So sentientism just said, look, let's keep the naturalism. But we need a broader moral circle. It includes any being that's capable of suffering. And I I think you are onto something about the parallels because although it might seem self-serving because they're two topics that are just personally interesting Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. and
0: really important. But in both situations, there is a journey that people can take. I think they almost start out I think little kids start out like little scientists in a way. They're quite naturalistic. They explore, they use their senses, they develop provisional beliefs, they look around and they learn. And then adults teach them that it's okay to believe things that aren't true, which is, in my simple terms, what most of religion is. That's good Good in there as well, but they're also taught, just believe, Have it's important to have faith. It doesn't matter that the evidence is weak. So that takes the child away from a sort of naturalistic start. But the same is very much true in a, when it comes to compassion and the moral circles. So I don't have a naive view of the ethics of small children, and there are kids that will be cruel to animals, but most children, I think you put them in a room with a pig or a cow or a chicken, and they wouldn't want to harm it because they have a, a natural sense. Mm-hmm. Similar mm-hmm. to yours, that if you felt suffering yourself, you can infer that
1: mm-hmm.
0: nobody else likes suffering either, and that these animals are capable of that suffering. So you start from that baseline of compassion and a reasonably broad moral circle. But again, then you're taught by society and parents and everybody else that no, it's completely normal and acceptable to pay people to torture and kill sentient beings for pleasure and because it seems socially normal. So there is something about that sort of starting out from a decent starting point, then basically being indoctrinated by society into something that has potentially dangerous ethics and is poorly founded in fact, and that, in, in a way with sentientism, what I'm trying to do is help us find our way back on both mm-hmm. fronts so that we both have a naturalistic grounding and a decent understanding of what reality really is, clear mm-hmm. eyes, open-minded, mm-hmm. um, with humility, but that we also have a broad moral circle that doesn't exclude any suffering at all. And part of the reason I started working on this was, came. and I'm talking too much here because I'm supposed to be talking, mm-hmm. listening to you really.
1: No, but- I... I- to talk. i'm gonna drink my coffee
0: but part of the yeah it's early for you so yeah i'll give you a break but part of it came from my frustration with the movement of humanism where there's a group of people who've they've turned away from social norms and with clear eyes they're now committed to a naturalistic understanding of the world that is based on evidence and reason and has a broad compassionate moral circle but those same people most of them are still trapped by another dogma another sort of kryptonite that is animal ethics so you talk to you know leading humanists that i think are are deep great thinkers and good people and moral leaders but they still have this sort of kryptonite around animal ethics that they're stuck by a very similar sort of form of indoctrination. So they can see that they're proud of the fact they've escaped one form of indoctrination, but they still mm-hmm. can't see the other. It's
1: so I'll stop ranting now. That's no, actually, I want, I like your ranting. It's not ranting. It's very thought provoking because I, I haven't delved too much into philosophy other than Peter Singer of no relation to me, though I like to call him dad. And it is it is. Fascinating to me when I do see these great thinkers who have given like a significant amount of energy and are like really established and have su- talk about mental gymnastics. Yeah. Like, how do you look at the world and come out with assuming that it is okay to do what we do to other individuals? I hear your dog behind you. I have my dog right here. And I, I just don't understand. Oh, hi, sweetheart. This is this why is I'm here. Sweetheart. <laughs> Hi, baby. <laughs> gonna say hello? Oh my God! Say hello to Jasmine. Oh my gosh, you have a sweet, cute, she's lovely. She's gorgeous and she. And you know, she's up on the keyboard. She looks like a cow.
0: She does. Yeah, she's got cow spots underneath the fur. She's about you... the size of a cat. So she.
1: Yeah, she's to... sweet. Thanks for showing me your tissue <laughs>
0: Yeah, sorry about that.
1: No, I love it. I have lots of. I have four animals in the house right now, but in any case, I, I, I know I've been thinking about these issues for a very long time. And it it is like actually inexplicable to me sometimes when I think that like extremely smart people can look at that dog and say, oh my gosh, what a cute little girl. And then take a bite of their hamburger just I understand that the vast majority of us are just trying to get through our day, and that yeah. we're like we're trying to take care of our kids and our jobs and our our finances and our houses and our mortgages and our family obligations and our neuroses and all of that. And it might not be at the forefront of our brains to be thinking about the fact that this is an animal who I'm about to eat. Yeah. But for people who actually purport to be great thinkers and big minds who understand the world and know that people go to them because they are at the basis of ethics for them yeah. to take a bite of their hamburger and justify it boggles my mind.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And it's um the thing that I have to continuously remind myself of is that I've I think I've had a much slower journey than you right. So I was one of those people not very long ago. For most I think I went vegetarian when I was like 22 23 and then I've been vegan for about 3 years now. And of course even veganism isn't some sort of state of perfect moral purity. Right. We you, it's impossible to live in the modern world without causing some harm. So this it's not like a journey that has an end point either. Although sometimes you wouldn't get that impression from vegans who do <laughs> come across as though they're morally perfect and pure. But, but I was one of those people for many years. So I was in a deliberate state of just trying not to think about the subject because I knew it would take me somewhere that felt to me socially uncomfortable and was a change I didn't want to make. So I, it, it is difficult because once you've made that fundamental switch to appreciate the perspective of the being itself, it's so simple. Everything else falls away. And as you say, the mental gymnastics people need to do to justify that. I, again, I think there are interesting echoes between the justifications you'll hear from a supernatural worldview and the justifications you'll hear from something like supporting animal farming. It's, right. um, it's bizarre. Once you've seen them and once you're on the other side of it, it seems completely impossible to understand how someone's brain can work that way. Yet for most of the people on the planet it does. Mm-hmm. Um and that's partly why I think it's really important to link both the the thinking about what's real, I guess the technical term being epistemology, and the ethics. Because again, it's a little self-serving just because I find this topic fascinating. But it seems to me that certainly all of the human-caused problems in the world, if you go back to the root cause of why is that happening. It's either because the moral circle is too narrow, right? So some people's moral circle even only applies to subsets of the human race. So we can we think about racism, sexism, caste discrimination, and all the other problems. We've got so much work still to do is because they're excluding a certain group of humans from their moral circle. It then goes broader, of course, and people are excluding certainly farmed animals. But often they'll include charismatic wildlife but not the non-charismatic wildlife in their moral circle so it's it's either a failure of compassion where the moral circle is too narrow so some suffering beings are just excluded or ignored or denigrated or it's with someone who genuinely have quite rich compassion Mm -hmm. it's because they've formed beliefs that aren't based in evidence so they literally have they believe something that isn't true and a compassionate person who believes something that isn't true can still do enormous harm So that's partly, again, why I think it's important for us to do both. It's not enough just to be compassionate. And it's not enough just to have a naturalistic worldview that's grounded in Mm -hmm. reality. I think we need both to really make progress. But again, I'm, you know, well, I I mean,
1: well, before, when I asked you, if you were atheist, and you explained that you're naturalist and explained that atheism is part of that, but that it has a humility to it that's what you said i really liked that because i certainly don't purport to know everything but one thing i find fascinating about that is that can we have humility when we know what's happening to animals and it is our moral obligation to change the world for them where does humility come in if we think that we are absolutely right when it yeah. comes to animal suffering i think that's a
0: tricky point isn't it because i think we need humility about our beliefs and that we you know we could be wrong there could be new evidence coming in but that doesn't mean we just say we don't know anything we for many things we can be 99.999% sure and that's certainly confident enough to take decisions and to be firm and robust so I guess humility on the sort of knowledge side of things doesn't mm-hmm. mean just give up on knowing things it just means we need to be skeptical and always open-minded about new stuff coming in but I think there's a sit- related to So you want to be humility. You want humility, but you don't want to just, you know, abandon (laughs) the idea of knowledge at all. Mm -hmm. You know that sort leads you to a weird nihilistic place. But I think there's a similar challenge on the compassion side because sometimes compassion can seem like it's weak or appeasing or letting people get away with things. But actually, quite often, to be genuinely compassionate to those beings that are being oppressed, you might well need to be pretty firm and direct and robust and and even cause some harm to the people doing the oppression in the context of helping mm-hmm. the beings that are being oppressed. So compassion to me doesn't need to be weak. It can actually justify strength and robustness and directness. And
1: Yeah. And I totally agree. I, I also think that I try to have humility as well. I'm a yeah. I'm a writer. And so being a writer means that like ego is infused in my career, but, but like, I, I do try to bring humility to all of the interviews I give uh, wh- where I'm interviewing people. Cause I don't, they're the experts like you, our henhouse house was created to be a playground really for me to explore. And I think it's amazing that other people get to explore it while I am. But truthfully, I just want to pick the brains of the people who I'm interviewing. That requires a, a lot of humility and curiosity, yeah. but that, that being said, when you talk about, and you mentioned it before, like what really matters, when I think about what really matters, and I think about philosophy, and I think about what's going on behind closed doors to animals, I I think philosophy, like it, it we only have so much time left, and you're probably a lot more academic than I am. I've given a few talks at universities and it's always, I I always feel like I'm out of my league, which isn't to say I don't think I'm smart, but it's a particular type of communication that I'm not used to. And I have been, I remember once being paid a like more money than i've ever been paid to give a talk and i was speaking and i got to the university and there were like 15 people and they were all professors who were tenured and they had paid me to talk to 15 professors who were tenured about animal rights issues and i didn't understand why they had paid me so much money and i didn't understand what the point was all i know is that the conversation with those 15 professors was completely insular yeah they, there was no advocacy element to it at all. There was nothing that was going to get out of like that room in terms of how we communicate around animal rights issues. And it made me feel like that a lot of academic circles are very stuck in just inside baseball conversations. Yeah. And to me, philosophy is very much adjacent to that. So although I'm fascinated by philosophy, at the end of the day, we have to act because what really matters to your point is the fact that our planet is not going to survive that much longer if we continue to go down the path we're going down. And there are actual lives being impacted right now. And obviously, you know that I'm sure your listeners already know that. And it is good to think about these issues, but it is super important to get out of our heads and our conversations about it.
0: I agree. And some of the conversations I've enjoyed most in this series have been with people who are professional philosophers, but they call themselves activist philosophers because they're actually out in the world pushing these ideas and trying to make change happen as well. Uh, And I don't think there are enough of them. And I'd agree with your characterization of philosophy because I find it, I'm not a philosopher myself, I'm not really an academic in that field at all. And while I find it fascinating, it feels like most of the effort in philosophy is working on the least important problems and and often while these sort of intricate thought experiments and trolley problems and so on are really fascinating thought experiments and sometimes they can really help to make sure we're working on solid ethical foundations as well a lot of them i just don't see as really directly relevant to the issues at hand and often the most important philosophy is the simplest stuff that you mm-hmm. can explain in words of one or two syllables without needing any academic terms whatsoever. That Those are the most important things, are the most foundational. And they're also the ones we're most confident about, we're most obviously right about. So that's partly why, you know, this sentientism idea, yes, it is a philosophy, but you can describe it by saying evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings, that's it. So it leaves most of the rest of philosophy – open right because you can there's all sorts of different ways of making there are loads of different trade-offs between interests or how Mm -hmm. do you prioritize different topics and you can use virtues and deontological rules and utilitarianism or consequentialism or whatever that's all very interesting but the basics are believe things based on reality and make sure your moral circle includes all beings that can suffer
1: yeah, you make that's me it think
0: and about- that's and all of the rest of it. You can fight about for as much as you like, but we've, we really need to lock in that baseline.
1: Just don't fight about it while you're eating a hamburger. I think that <laughs> yeah, exactly. you make me think of like the reason that and I and this is a true story because I asked him about it. But the reason Peter Singer went vegan originally. Do you know this story?
0: He- yeah. To tell it for our listeners. Okay, I, I do remember it slightly. Here.
1: Yeah. He was having a lunch with a friend of his. And he was very young, and the friend didn't have meat on the plate, and Peter did. And Peter said to his friend, oh, why aren't you eating meat? And his friend said, mm, I'm uncomfortable with the way animals are treated. That was it. Yeah. And Peter went, huh and then he became peter singer and wrote animal liberation and is like the grandfather of the animal rights movement and it's to your point that like it is that is it he has yeah. developed great theories he was one of time magazine's most 100 influence influential people of the last century but what his friend said is it, that is it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it doesn't need some sort of dazzling intellectual breakthrough, it's it's, it's like staring you in the face.
1: Yeah, and Marianne who I I co-host our headhouse with had actually similar story, you know, went vegan because a friend of hers wasn't eating meat and same thing, I think we're at a bar eating like bar food and the friend was like eating the fries or whatever the chips excuse me and Marianne was like what are you so you don't eat meat and no i just not comfortable with the way the animals are treated bam
0: yeah end of story
1: nice if it was that simple though all around
0: (laughs) it would be nice wouldn't it and how early did that journey happen for you because -hmm. again that expansion of the moral circle is can be for some people it's natural and a light goes on and it happens quite early for other people they realize it but the social Context and a family context is difficult. It takes years. I was trapped in various levels of cognitive dissonance for decades myself. But mm-hmm. so how, how how early did that kick in for you, and was that an easier or a difficult process?
1: I went vegetarian when I was nineteen. Uh, yeah. I was a theater student in Philadelphia. I wore all black and I smoked clove cigarettes, but I didn't inhale <laughs> them. And I thought very highly of <laughs> my my appearance, like how I appeared to others, and I thought vegetarians suited it. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and it was it was yeah, it was like the late nineties and uh, yeah, it was I, I just I also think the reason for that decision was that I thought that meat was icky. That was it. I just thought yeah. meat was gross. It, I And I used to say I'm a vegetarian, but not the mean kind, which is funny because <laughs> like my whole life and career has become about being the, the quote unquote mean kind. <laughs> but I don't think I didn't know what factory farming was. I don't know if that was an, a term I had ever thought about or heard. I just knew that Johnny Rockets on South Street had a veggie burger. And so I could still go to Johnny Rockets with my friends yeah joint. And in the late 90s, for a burger joint like that to offer a veggie burger was it was not nothing. Now it's everywhere. So like people who yeah. are just going vegan now, are like, what do you mean that? Why is that exciting? It was exciting. Yeah, and then, um, It was. And then when I was 24, living in New York City, and I was an AIDS awareness actor educator. I was in a theater company where we used to go into inner city schools and teach kids about AIDS and about safer sex and about domestic violence and things like that. I was advocating for those who were marginalized and pretty much living on dairy and eggs. Like I was not the kind of vegetarian you have these days where a lot of people who who are vegetarian are probably mostly vegan because they understand that there's a lot available to them. But I was a vegetarian who only ate pizza and mac and cheese, not the vegan varieties. And, and then I met a a vegan. The story goes, I met a vegan. At some point met a vegan. And so I, she showed me a documentary that she was screening and I saw it and I, I was so uncomfortable about the exploitation of the female reproductive parts and organs and systems it wasn't for many years that it occurred to me that it is also an exploitation of the male reproductive system it is also rape of the males I honestly had been vegan for a long time by then Uh, I was like such a feminist that I just saw protect the female bodies or whatever Which then later became clear to me that was also a problematic way of thinking because it was reinforcing a gender binary. But that's for another episode. (laughs) Yeah. At the time, I just on
0: that top on on that topic. I one of my recent interviews was with Vicky Bond from who runs the Humane League UK, and she was a vet, um, and that was one of the experiences she described was the electrostimulation of of the male bull of the bulls.
1: Really? Oh, I yeah yeah yeah. shocking. Something people talk about very often. Yeah. I was working in the farm animal protection movement for a very long time before I was like, how do the bulls get their semen extracted? Yeah. And then I couldn't find an answer. And then yeah. I finally found an answer. Like it was not, it is not written about or talked about. And then of course it's horrific. Yeah. It's completely horrific. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway.
0: Sorry to stop you.
1: Yeah, no, I I will. I will listen to that. So I was I had so many women had been date raped when I was young as well. And that was a big part of my story and my early process. And it was something that haunted me for a long time. It took me many years to get past. And when I saw what was happening to the dairy cows and egg laying hens, I just I just couldn't separate it anymore from what had happened. And what had happened to so many women I knew and men. So I went vegan and immediately became an activist. I didn't just go vegan, I went vegan and then made it my entire life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. It's been an amazing contribution already and much more to come. And uh, th- th- that will be an interesting thing to move on to now is to think, and it's difficult. Sometimes I think when we're engaged in these types of movements and these efforts it can social change always feels too slow but at the same time there are positive shifts happening so sometimes i try and set a, an optimistic cast in this sort of final section but you can correct that if you feel the need but if you imagine a situation where again this this is a strange situation where i think you and i both feel the values we're putting forward here are so solid and so strong and so incontrovertible, it's shocking that most of the 8 billion other people on the planet disagree in one way, shape, or form. It's such a stark thing to understand. But if you imagine a world where more of those people did take us on a naturalistic approach to thinking about what's real and saw so with clearer eyes, and they had a broader moral circle that included mm-hmm. non-human animals, what would that future look like for you? And how quickly do you think we'll get there? And what, what are the most important ways you think we can get there
1: Uh, okay so to just to clarify so that I'm sure I understand what would the world look like how would it be different if we as a society were more all-encompassing when it came to our view of sentient life
0: yes and that includes all humans as well it might have implications for how we treat and live with animals, how uh, human ethics and human discriminations, could be anything. Yeah. It's 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 sort of universal compassion and a naturalistic way of understanding things.
1: I I mean, I love this this question and I'm not it's a, another question I'm never asked so the question I am usually asked, and then I'll answer yours. But the question I'm usually asked is what does the next five years look like for veganism? Yeah, And then I just answer that based on my understanding of trends and my understanding of the trajectory of people going vegan, my understanding of the companies that are embracing plant-based as like a viable part of their business plans and their menus. I am very rarely asked or if, maybe never... what does it look like if we do just switch our, because I think so strategically and so literally that like I often say, yeah, we'll have a bunch of cows running around for 20 years because <laughs> yeah. because they're going to no longer be eaten and so we're going to have a problem for 20 years. We're going to need a lot of sanctuary for them and then they will just exist as they are supposed to. We will no longer be breeding them to exist. But what would it look like on a more sort of, a more sort of poetic level if we were to switch our mindset and to be more be more true to our worldview of compassion because most Mm. people would say they're well i would most people say they're compassionate maybe before the trump era i would i would have believed that but now i think the reason trump was so popular was because he fostered hate and aggression and i think people like really were like yeah i'm hateful and aggressive so i'm not sure those people consider themselves compassionate but
0: the weird Um, thing is even those people still love their mothers You know, I think they do most of them. But I think you're right. It's there's I think there's two problems. There's either either people have restricted that compassion. So now they like only have compassion for people like them, but not other people and not beyond. Or they are genuinely compassionate people. And I think many people are like this. They're genuinely compassionate but they don't see the oppression that's going on, or de- they deny that it's happening, or they deliberately don't think Well, And for I, some people, it's both, maybe.
1: I think they're isolationist. I think that's yeah. what the last four yeah. years have looked like in America. I think we've become very isolationist. I think we've become very just individually focused, and yeah. we've lost our thread. So when you say, oh, those people love their mother, that is true but their mother is like in their inner bubble like yeah. they would they would care about their mother but not their neighbor i think that's what america has become in the last few years and maybe it always was that and maybe trump just allowed people to express that in a way that we they haven't in so long wow that's so depressing there's also a lot of hope and i choose yeah. hope as a strategy i think we can opt in for hope and we can use it to stay sane. But you're asking me a different question, which is like, what does the world look like if we actually look at, I'm looking at my dog right now, you're looking at yours, and we think sentient, like that individual has their own will to live and yeah. and that individual feels things. And therefore, as somebody who, for whatever reason, is has an unjust privilege power over them, I'm going to do my part to make sure that they're safe. I think the problem with that sentence is that we do have an unjust power. And so yeah. if we strip away that unjust power, and if we are all truly equal, we are all truly tr- treating each other with it and ourselves with integrity, then what does the world look like? I think it looks like we need to heal. Like yeah. we need to heal from generations of normalizing cruelty. And I think it's going to be, of course, it's not that simple. Like it's not going to happen. I think a lot of really bad stuff is going to happen first, but then maybe we'll come to a point where we have to work together and we have to start to reconsider the way we treat those who are currently pushed into the margins.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's difficult to think through because there's a danger of being naive and utopian, but some of the answers that people have relayed in these conversations, it's almost assumed that, we will achieve an end, a complete end to animal farming. That's almost a sort of obvious thing that we will get there. We don't know when or how that cannot be part of the sort of future we're envisioning where there's compassion for all sentient beings. I think people also layer in implications as you've just done for human ethics and human behavior and how we work together as well. And there is something in there about, in a way, while sentientism is quite you might see it's quite individualistic because it's saying each individual sentient being has moral value and worth because of the rich interdependencies and links between all sentient beings and the importance of working together and collaborating for all of us to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. It's, it also reflects that rich interconnectedness and that value of cooperation and that need to cooperate and that and the aesthetic and emotional value that every sentient being gets from relationships and family as well. So maybe it is just to. Uh, utopian naive but i think there there are themes there around certainly the way we we would live with non-human animals but i think there are also implications for how the prevalence of human discriminations and human behavior and human cooperation might shift over time as well
1: yeah i i hope so this year has been it has shed light on how how deeply divided we are. It's also yeah. it's shed light on the fact that, like you said before, so many vegans are creating harm. It's for me, being anti-racist is core to my veganism and my animal advocacy. And sure. it is very clear to me that it's not the case for a lot of vegans. So yeah. to explain... To express our worldview consistently, we need to understand how we have benefited from a culture that oppresses other individuals, whether it is benefiting from a white supremacist culture or benefiting from a carnistic culture.
0: Yeah. And how do you, uh, one of the challenges that is sometimes pushed back on sentientism and any, you know, animal advocacy as well, is that some people will say, look, we need to focus on the human problems we have first, because humans are more important, either because they think scientifically we're more important Mm -hmm. because of our capabilities and our intelligence, or because of some religious worldview that says we're made in the image of God, so we're more important and we have dominion. So either way, people will say, look, humans are most important, human problems are most important, including the various forms of discrimination that we've touched Mm -hmm. on. So we need to sort that out first before dealing with non-human animals how do you respond to that sort of challenge
1: just don't eat animals while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. i agree that there are a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of issues with human rights concerns and that they're they're extraordinarily dire but we don't need to eat animals that's the thing about being vegan is it's it, it could just be a choice you make while you're fighting for whatever social justice realm you want to be in we have to be in those spaces too vegans have to be in those spaces we don't necessarily have to be working on animal rights campaigns we just have to not be partaking in a system that continues to oppress them
0: yeah and that's the thing i find bizarre is that it's not even a trade-off it's a win in every circumstance If we can bring an end to animal farming that's obviously a win for non-human farmed animals but it's also a win for many wild animals and it's right. certainly a win for humans so when you yeah. think about you know climate change when you think about the oppression of people within those systems when you think about uh, antimicrobial resistance or zoonotic disease right there is no there's no real loser from <laughs> right from doing that it isn't yeah. even a trade-off and we we need to find a way of transitioning that has compassion for the the people whose lives are part of those industries now. I'm. Uh, I love the initiatives that are trying to work with, like the Rancher Advocacy Project and others that are trying to work with ranchers and farmers to help them transition away from animal farming. Yes. And we need to have compassion for the people in those systems. We can't just castigate them.
1: A hundred percent. And yes. ab-
0: abandon them. But the transition is just a win-win-win. It seems breathtakingly obvious. We just need to. But but I think it comes back to some what we've touched on in the earlier conversation. I think you and I would just love the sheer force of moral argument to be enough, mm-hmm. right? Because people would the the billions of people who are listening to this podcast and watching this YouTube and just the light would go on and they change their minds. But we know that just isn't enough. So there's also something else about trying to find ways of easing or making it easier for people to do the right thing there. So, and what what's your thinking about what the right balance of different styles of advocacy is to given that challenge?
1: I think that having moral arguments is a privilege to be honest. Like I think, I I think having it's 9am we started this my time and I have the privilege of being able to do this interview and you have the privilege of being, we both have the privilege of being able to have a podcast and, I think that there are a lot of people who have like dire life and death circumstances every day. Women who are in households where there's a lot of domestic violence, they might not be, they might not have the brain space to just sit and watch a moral argument about yeah, what
0: have the luxury of yeah, right. listening to us like yeah. great.
1: people who uh, live in food deserts or are just really struggling or who like inherited their family business and that's just their path forward and they don't necessarily have the world at their feet they don't necessarily yeah. have the ability I, I get why it's not like the number one priority for everybody but that being said, I think everybody can go vegan. I just think, like, we have to work better in terms of not being, like, pedantic or condescending in our advocacy efforts and understanding that, like, there are people in every community who's all, who are already working to advocate veganism, and they're not necessarily the ones who are getting... In invitations to be on podcasts or like they're not getting book deals. And, and there are so many reasons why that is the case. We have to shift the way we elevate people around us. And you and I are uniquely situated to be able to do that because um, so, so much of what we do is about leveraging others and funding needs to be dispersed differently we need to be prioritizing the advocacy efforts of people of the global majority we need to be shifting boards of directors we need mm. to be creating power positions and making it possible for those who have been marginalized to be standing in those power positions and from there i think things will start to change
0: yeah yeah and i th- i think there's also a degree to which there's often this challenge between talking about in advocating for individual change and people going vegan versus all the institutional change levers but i think p- depending on people's ability and their time and uh, they can play a role in all of those different aspects so the baseline is the individual decisions you take but individuals aren't just consumers they're also voters and they can stand for office and they have roles in organizations as uh, mm-hmm. employees and managers and leaders and shareholders so i think there are even if it makes sense to put if we're more more likely to make larger scale progress for the animals through institutional change and things like the field of law that Marianne works in, mm. Ind- individuals can still play a role in pulling those levers as well. It's not just about individual consumption. Right. I totally agree about the the range of voices that need to be involved in this process because. One of the criticisms that's often thrown against a sort of naturalistic worldview, or even a, a vegan or an animal advocacy worldview, is that it's coming from a sort of quite a narrow, modern, cultural place. And I just don't think that's quite right. I think if you look back at the ancient roots of naturalistic ways of thinking, they go back into China and Asia and Africa mm-hmm. and... Ancient Greece. But it's true also of the sort of sentient sentientistic the animal ethics side as well. So you go back into Jain or Buddhist or Rastafarian or these themes right. of thought about naturalism and compassion for non humans have deep ancient roots in many cultures. Yeah. And that should be reflected in the voices we hear talking about those things today as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I get into that a little bit in Fabulous Vegan. There there are so many examples of that, including the fact that like hunters and gatherers they approached food much differently than I think we think. It was just yeah. the occasional game, <clears throat> the occasional animal and mostly it was plant based. I think the word plant based makes me roll my eyes, but I do think most people who would identify right now as plant based, who aren't necessarily vegan, probably only occasionally eat animal products and that is the way that it was for a lot of our for a lot of our ancestors. And it, it's only recently, I think we have to remember that it is only recently during World War II that this became like the giant big Enormous problem that we are in right now.
0: Yeah, properly industrialized. And I think the other thing that resonated from what you said is that we we can't expect, almost nobody has got the level of sort of privilege and luxury that you and I have to engage in these issues. Mm -hmm. So we can't really expect other people to plug in and think this through given the other pressure they've got in their lives and i think that's another reason why that some of those institutional levers are really important to pull as well because we have to make it easy for those people to do the right thing we can't expect them to struggle and to engage in the issues and so on we've almost got to make it so whether that comes back to fast cheap easy availability of alternative products that solves and gets into some of the food desert problems or whether it's legal changes or regulatory changes Mm. or changes in Taxes and subsidies that shift the incentives, you know, to try and move away from the animal farming industry. All of those things will actually make it easier for a wider group of people to end up doing the right thing. And once people are, more people are doing the right thing, I think it frees them up to improve their ethics as well. Ironically, their ethics will catch up once they're already once they're already acting. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. No, there's a lot of hope for sure. I think that, like I said, hope is something we can use strategically, but it that doesn't mean it's bullshit yeah. it means that it, it's something we're grasping onto and understanding that there are a lot of reasons that we are changing and that we are evolving as a society and the at the end of the day we just have to make the choices that are in alignment with our best selves and with the world that we want to be a part of and get get out of that thought that it doesn't matter if i if one person goes vegan because it does Veganism is something, humans are a very social species, like person to person and by example is extraordinarily important. So whether you live alone and you're in quarantine right now, like even then the choices you're making to support the buying the plant-based, the vegan products from your local grocery store where you're getting curbside pickup or the the vegan friendly restaurant where you're getting food delivered or whatever it is, that is showing that there is a need for the the bottom line to be driven by compassionate, cruelty free food. Yeah. So, and I do
0: find it frustrating different. because there are some people who talk about. I think they talk rightly about all the institutional levers we've got to pull, but then they almost use that as an excuse not to make the personal change. And I'm like, well no, then,
1: <laughs> make sure if those people litter or if they don't vote, yeah. because it's exactly the same thing. I don't what's the difference if this like one water bottle is just yeah. thrown on the street?
0: I'll wait for the government to fix it for exactly. me. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Or I'm not going to vote because it's just one vote. What's yeah. the difference? It's the exact same mindset as yeah. why we need to eat in alignment with our beliefs. Yeah.
0: I agree. No. I agree. That's been a really inspiring conversation. Thank you. I, I hope we're gonna, with the help of your book, accelerate ourselves towards a f- a fabulous vegan future.
1: I hope so. We should all be fabulous. That's really the bottom line here.
0: I think that's the utopian sci-fi end state, is it? Yeah. Thank
1: you. That's the world I want to live in—a fabulous one. Yeah. And I like. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate that you are. encouraging thought beyond just what is ordinary and beyond what is right in front of us. But we do have to take a deeper look at these issues and at what is real and what matters and and how we formed those opinions and our behaviors and what it means now. How do we shift to a better, more compassionate, ethical future? So thank you for doing what you're doing. I'm a fan.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I think the the foundational things are the most important and they're also the simplest. And while they might seem sort of common sense and almost tautological, they have deeply radical and very urgent implications and we need to make change happen faster. Your entire life's been a, a real inspiration in the movement and I look forward to reading Fabulous Vegan. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. Thanks, Jamie.
0: Take care. Speak to you soon. I'll I'll buy you that coffee next time you're in London.
1: I cannot wait.
0: And you can meet Luna in person.
1: I want to. That's now my new life objective. Get there, meet her.
0: (laughs) Sounds great. All right. Take care.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for listening.
0: You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?